0: Evidence and Answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. If you're new to Evidence and Answers, we welcome you. Today on the show, Pat will be interviewing Oz Guinness, noted scholar and author. They've been discussing Mr. Guinness's latest book, Fools Talk. With part two, here's Pat and his guest. As Guinness.
1: And the result is repentance, that about-turn, that metanoia, that about-turn of and mind. And you can see Psalm 51 drenched in David's sorrow, but the about-turn is in the parable, not just in the result in Psalm 51.
2: So what you're showing in your book is that God uses all types of methods to communicate to different individuals and different audiences, and that's something Christians must be able to do to engage and be relevant in the presentation of the gospel to the unbelieving world. That's what you're saying here, isn't it?
1: No, absolutely. And if you were, and I were doctors, Pat, my mother was. You, I'm not. Uh, you know, if we were doctors, you have an infinite variety of diseases and ailments come into your clinic, and you have to listen and diagnose before you give the remedy. Now, the trouble is, a lot of Christians like a a quack doctor has got six pills and gives them out regardless of whoever the, whatever the person says. No, we've got to find out what's the problem first, and then, having diagnosed it rightly, give the remedy that's appropriate. And Again, I'm saying that the basic cat asks, is someone open or are they closed?
2: Now, in order for Christians to develop this skill of what you're talking about, to customize the message to each person, one of the things they must be able to do is to be able to ask the right questions, isn't it?
1: Well, that's true, yes. but now We ask questions in two ways. Getting to know someone, our questions are loving, courteous, humble, basically surround, tell me a story. We want to get to know them and where they're coming from. When you discover where they're coming from, if they're open, as I said, you can be simple, but if they're not open say they're prejudiced or hostile, you meet Richard Dawkins, whoever, you use questions to push people out to try and be true to what they say they believe, and we know it's not true, so eventually we know they will hit their heads against the wall. So we're asking questions that are probing and pressing.
2: So, for example, you meet, let's say, a hostile atheist. What kind of questions would you be asking him?
1: Well, I'd be... It depends on the person, of course, but I'd be asking questions that helped him or her see what their atheism would mean for them in practice where it mattered. And Jesus talks about the treasure of the heart. Let me give you an example, and this is not my questioning. I was speaking once when I was in my late 20s in university, a new university in England, and a professor came. He was in his mid-50s, and he was married to a woman I think about 15 years younger than him, and they'd lived, by their own acknowledgments, very, very free lives. He'd slept with other women. She'd slept with other men. They had an open marriage, as it was called in the 60s. And then, to their surprise and delight, a little daughter had come along. And oddly, although they loved each other, they loved the little daughter more than they loved each other. And they knew that to bring up their little daughter, vulnerable to the ethics of the 1960s, which are mild compared to some of the things happening today, would leave her exposed. And so for the first time in their lives, they thought, what would it take to bring her up? They started to think about truth and values and meaning. And this professor came to the meetings and came to Christ as an atheist. In other words, his love for his little daughter was the treasure of his heart. And everyone's got something down there somewhere through which you'll be able to touch them. And that's what we're looking for. It's not just to win an argument, as I said but to touch a person's heart and mind together. Lo- Schaeffer was good at this. It wasn't just someone's arguments were illogical. They might have been. It was the illogic of what they were arguing touched their life. When logic touches life, hearts and minds spring open.
2: And so one of the things Christians need to get skilled in also is to be able to think logically and to be able to hear persons and perhaps point out inconsistencies or unreasonable kinds of logic, I guess, in their particular position. Is that a skill Christians, you feel, need to develop?
1: Absolutely. The only thing I would say, Pat, it doesn't come from books. It comes from experience. In other words, you can't learn ahead of times. You know, one of my friends is Jim Sire, who wrote the wonderful best-selling book, The Universe Next Door, fabulous book. But the danger of people using an excellent book like that is they think everybody is a kind of card-carrying version of a humanist, or an atheist, or a relativist, or whatever it is. People aren't. They're people with ideas. So we've got to talk to this humanist, this skeptic, this relative, or whatever, and discover where their bad philosophy touches their life and it matters to them. And that takes a bit of listening, and it's not just a matter of learning it from books or thinking it through a head. But you do learn from experience, thank God.
2: Yes, well, how can you know we develop that ability really to discern and analyze and be critical thinkers when we're listening to people as they share their ideas and make that connection, what you're talking about here?
1: Well, you know, with any deep learning, you don't get it from books, you don't get it from seminars, you don't get it from sermons. Here is where our Lord is closer to Socrates and Plato than he is to many of us. Because you can see the idea of tutoring or discipling, say, Socrates to Plato, Jesus to his disciples, is the idea the deepest things in life you learn under a master in experience from his authority. So there is more to knowing than knowing can ever know and say. So, you know, I could tell you after looking at a manual exactly how you make a souffle or repair a computer. But things that we're talking about, you can't learn that way. They're not one, two, three, four, five, six, and so on. And you've got to really learn them. So I learned more with Schaefer than I ever learned from reading his books. And many people who just read his books, I think, get him badly wrong. And so I would say to everyone, whoever whoever you are, find an apologist you love, or listen to Rabbi Zacharias or whatever, and learn from them in experience.
2: Now, for those of us that you touched on it briefly here, that perhaps don't have the privilege of studying under or being discipled by you know one of the great teachers out there like a Francis Schaefer. how do we develop these kinds of skills you're talking about?
1: Well, I haven't been to your part of the world yet, Pat, but looking forward to coming. Obviously, you're such a leader in your area, but in almost every area, there are people. I think the same is true of preaching, as of apologetics. You'd learn more under, I sat under John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones for many years, and learn. I'm not a preacher, but I learned far more that way than any reading or whatever, and Obviously, you in your area should invite people to come around you, go with you. And you're a master of your own, so through your radio program and so on.
2: How would you engage someone, you mentioned it briefly, someone who is just kind of aloof? He's really happy with where he's at and really doesn't care to engage in spiritual dialogue about Christ. How would you, what kind of questions or how would you engage that kind of person?
1: No, great question. There's no sure fire way of reaching everybody so you know obviously the question is why are they aloof is it a matter of personality and extreme shyness or have they been badly burned by some experience in the past and so they're guarding the wound or the scar in other words why but at the end of the day often our words never finally get through and always we have prayer you know my esteemed and beloved father-in-law is in heaven now When my wife and I got married, because of his own family background, my wife's grandfather, who turned off a whole generation, my father-in-law used to slam the plate down on the table if he talked about God or faith or anything like that. And it was 25 years before his heart was opened. And many of those 25 years, we had to do very little but pray constantly, love him completely, and raise gentle questions. That's what we tried to do. So there's no surefire way of reaching anyone. So I'm not sending out in the book a number of techniques, master these, and you can reach everyone, not at all. Even our Lord, and there's no one greater than our Lord, you always know with our Lord as well as with us, everyone at the end of the day can either fall on their knees or turn on their heels. And clearly there were many in our Lord's crowds who turned on their heels and actually plotted to get rid of him because they hated what he was saying when they saw what he was saying, especially about them. So there's no surefire technique. People always have the freedom under God, a very solemn freedom, a sober freedom, to turn away.
2: Now, you also state in your book, Christian advocacy must be faithful. At the end of the day, when all debts to Greece, Rome, moderns, postmoderns, and others have been acknowledged, Christian persuasion must be decisively Christian and true to itself. Explain what you mean by that. Has today's popular methods of evangelism veered off course here? Well, some of them
1: have. I remember an evangelistic technique in the 70s that said you should never allow anyone to ask questions. In other words, the decision for Christ was the equivalent of a deal financially And it was based on a technique you drive people towards the deal with no diversions in the road, and questions for the apologists were smokescreens for moral issues. Now, that's appalling, absolutely appalling. But I'm thinking more widely of that. Apologists tend to become like the people they talk to. So if we talk to the new atheists, we become heavily scientific with some of the militancy that they bring. Or we talk to, say, the philosophers, you get something like the five for God, kindness, and so on, and you become incredibly philosophical. Well, the fact is that if you look in the Scripture, there are biblical truths which we should be based on creation, the fall, the cross, we talked about fool's talk earlier, the power of the Holy Spirit. For example, the Spirit reliance on God's Spirit is often completely forgotten. But biblically, he is the great apologist, the prosecutor convincing of truth and convicting of sin. And, you know, Søren Kierkegaard, the British Danish philosopher, he says, we are only midwives. Who gives the new birth? God, not us. We're midwives. That's all we are. So the idea of the whole weight is on the apologist as the great white hope in boxing who will knock all skeptics out of the ring, that's nonsense. We're very humble. I like to, I have on my desk right in front of me now, a little silver donkey about half an inch high. Big ears to look rather ridiculous. I think Balaam's ass is the patron saint of apologists. <laughs> when the prophet was that mad, the Lord used a donkey to talk to him. That's about what we are. Humble, serviceable, often rather ridiculous. We're not much. The Spirit is doing what matters. Now we have to make that reliance on the Spirit, Central to apologetics again.
2: You mention in your book that Christian persuasion must address the mind, but the heart as well. That seems like an awfully difficult task there. How does one accomplish something like that?
1: Not easy, but you remember, you're not, in other words, we're, we're talking to whole people. You want the whole person to come to Christ. Christian faith is thoroughly rational, but it's not rationalistic. Because we are more than reason. We're, we have a will, we have emotions, and we have uh, feelings and, and a will and so on. So we are whole people, and we're talking to whole people. And we've got to remember that. What gets through? Now, some people, they send their minds out like a scout to consider every argument they come across in life. And so the intellect feels very appealing. But it's often they're keeping things back, and it's when you really touch the heart. As I said earlier, when logic touches life, you start to see trapdoors spring open, and so on.
2: How do you deal with, as you state in your book, people are not always rational, and so the logical approach doesn't always work, but how do you deal with in those kinds of situations where people may not have a rational case against Christianity or God?
1: Well, you have to find out what the case is. For example, one of the biblical ways of persuading, maybe the least subversive way, but a a simple, straightforward way, is what's called reframing. In other words, the framework through which people see God is all wrongs. They don't see God. If we believed what they believe about God, we wouldn't believe in God either. And so what they believe, which is so distorted, needs to be reframed. And a simple example of that in Scripture is Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost, which is often considered the first Christian apologetic. You have apologetics in the Old Testament, but the first Christian apologetics. And you remember what happened, Pat? uh, The spirit falls, they're all speaking in tongues, and the skeptics say what? They're drunk. And Peter gets up and says, No, come on. This is 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. This is what Joel predicted. And he reframes the issue from a drunken outburst to a profound prophetic word drives the whole argument forward, and 3,000 come to Christ that day. In other words, they had it all wrong, and they need to be reframed, and that's tr- that's so with many, many people. Uh, I, I often tell the story, I was talking to a southerner two years back, who hated God. Well, it turned out when I got into his story, his father was a deacon in the local church who'd physically, badly abused his mother, and he projected this onto God. Now, the problem wasn't anything to do with any philosophical grounds of atheism. It was this intense hatred of his father projected onto the Lord. The whole thing needed to be clarified and reframed.
2: Well, I see. Now, what you're talking about, I mean, the way we need to customize our message to each individual person to be able to discern truth from error, to ask good, solid questions, it takes years of study and preparation to develop these kinds of skills, doesn't it? I mean, you just don't no. go to a <laughs> seminar and, and develop that.
1: But you can be set off in the right direction by a seminar. No, Think of this. You know, when the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3:15, the very famous verse, "Verse, be always ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you." And as you know well, that word "reason," the Greek word is apologia. Be ready to give an apology a reasoned defense. Now, does he assume that everyone in whatever church he was writing to had been to some seminary or gone to uh, even a seminar in a parliament? They couldn't do that. No, no, we've got to make it much simpler again in ways that an ordinary person can go out and just try for themselves. And they'll, you, know, you speak to one person, you may fall on your nose. You speak to a hundred people, and you start realizing which ways are useful and which ways are sensitive and which ways are not useful. So you've got to get away from thinking of books and seminars, let alone seminaries, let alone super hyper-apologetic courses.
2: You know, one of the things you do mention in your book is that you waited, what, 40 years to write this book because you wanted to be battle-tested and to really refine you know, what you were teaching here and to be able to share it on an experiential level, not just a the theoretical level.
1: Well, it wasn't that I wasn't sure it was the right way. I learned these things from Francis Schaeffer and others a long time ago, 40 years ago or more. But it was more that I think the curse of apologetics is talking about it. Now, there's a place for it. You're not doing it right now. But the curse of apologetics is people just talking about it or reading about it and discussing it. We've got to do it. The doing is worth a hundred times more than the talking about it. So I wanted to make sure for myself, not that I had more books to read or more courses to go through. No, no, that wasn't the point. Rather, I wanted to be sure before the Lord that I had done it, tried to be faithful in doing it, and wasn't just writing about it or talking about it.
2: Now, we talked a lot about as individuals being equipped and ready to engage the lost culture for Christ. Well, what message do you have for the church? How can the church communicate their message effectively in the post-Christian culture we find ourselves in today?
1: Well, I actually welcome many features of the post-Christian culture. And as a European, Europe has gone through its sorting, sifting stage back in the 1960s. So if you're a Christian now in Europe, by and large, you know where you stand. I'm a Christian. I'm not this, not that, not the other. It's clarifying. America is beginning to go through that. You take, say, the uh, discouragement over the rising number of so-called religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Actually, that's partly a good thing. Many of the new
0: nuns,
1: N-O-N-E-S, are the old nominals shifting side. In other words, when the Christian faith was popular, people came to church in droves. And so they were there, but they were only nominally Christians, conventionally Christians, cultural Christians. Now, as secularism rises in popularity and the Christian faith has a backlash against it, those people are deserting in droves. That's terrific. Remember, our Lord himself says, at one stage in his ministry, he's highly popular. Whoever's not against me is for me. But as he gets closer to the cross and the stakes mount, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And we're much more in the second period of our lord's ministry in terms of america today that's a pretty good thing but there are still many many people open the gospel well and hearts are still open
2: i see so you know as we're ending the show here your overall assessment since we're talking mostly to americans here but also to many of those in asia our, our shows in asia what is your assessment of the american church how effective has the Church in America been in engaging this post-Christian culture?
1: Not too good. In other words, America used to be described accurately as a Christian country. That didn't mean everyone was Christian, and it wasn't officially Christian. A lot of Christians go wrong there. But the ideas that made this country were decisively Christian, and the huge majority of individuals were Christians. And that's changing. The number of Christians is shrinking and the prominence of faith in American life is going down, and many Christians are giving a false response to it. In other words, they're trying to take things back by using politics or whatever. So we've got to think through very carefully, that would take us more than just a minute or two, what it means to engage our post-Christian culture in ways that are effective, and that's the challenge of where we are today. Now, as I said at the very beginning, this culture is now post-Christian, But it's also post-secular. We realize it's not secular either. It's post-Christian, but it's certainly not non-Christian. And so we're in a kind of transition period where there's everything to play for. And we need Christians both in deeds and words to be getting out there with boldness, articulating the faith, and showing and demonstrating answers to many of the big questions of our time.
2: Now, our show also airs in Asia. And what is your assessment of the church in Asia, where we're seeing an explosion of Christianity there in the countries throughout Asia and Southeast Asia and the Pacific.
1: Well, as you started off that, I was born in Asia, so I'm absolutely thrilled at that. Where I happened to be born, north-central China, in Henan province, is the epicenter of the fastest growth of the Church in 2,000 years. So I thank God what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia is magnificent. But I would add a sting in the tail... The global South is exploding with the gospel, but most of the global South is pre-modern. And what's done in the church in the Western world is its captivity, capitulation to the advanced modern world. In other words, take China, their challenge is coming. So it's, I've got to say this carefully and with deep respect, the Chinese faith in the country home churches that survived the persecution of Mao Zedong is heroic, couldn't be more admiring. But in some ways, it takes more of a courage and challenge to negotiate, say, Shanghai or Beijing, big city life in the modern world, takes greater courage and conviction than even to survive the persecutions of Mao Zedong.
2: Wow, those are some fantastic words. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Oz Guinness, popular Christian author and Christian scholar and social critic. He's a very popular speaker throughout the world and will be our featured speaker here at the Hawaii Apologetics Conference next February 2016. So if you want to hear him live and interact with him, you know we encourage you to come to our conference right here in Hawaii, enjoy the beach, enjoy the warm weather, those of you in the uh, cold Midwest and East Coast over there be able to hear and interact with him speaking on some of these great topics. So, Os thanks for being with us once again here on Evidence and Answers.
1: Great privilege, Pat, and I look forward to next February immensely.
0: We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.